Good morning and happy Feast of Pentecost to churches throughout the Upper Midwest. It's a real joy to, to do this kind of reaching out to you, at least in some ways. You know how much I wish I could be with you all and would have been in a handful of your churches over the last three months. Uh, but this is better than nothing. And it is an incredible joy to be able to reach you on this very important feast. So let me pray for us and then we'll look together at God's Word. Father in heaven, we do ask that on this feast of the Holy Spirit, this feast of the church, this Trinitarian feast, let we pray, Father, that you will send the promise of the Holy Spirit who fills us with Jesus, who is the Word of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us personally this morning. Stir us personally this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So back in 1978, I had an old school type of job, classic for 12-year-olds in that day, where I delivered the local paper uh, throughout our neighborhood. And it was way before you wrap papers up and put them in plastic bags. I had an old school canvas bag that I put on my shoulder with a big pocket in the front and a big pocket in the back. And I went door to door. At that point, nearly everyone got the Indianapolis Star, and I delivered the paper. Then I went around every two weeks when I would collect the fees for the newspaper. And at Christmas time, when I went around, I was always assured that most families would give some kind of tip. But one Christmas, I went to the nicest house. It was the biggest house, had big pillars out in front, very impressive home in our neighborhood. And I didn't know the owner, but he came to the door and I asked for the usual fees. And he knew that it was Christmas. And he pulled out of his pocket two business-sized cards. And he said, look, I own restaurants throughout Indianapolis, and I want you to take these two cards. They are a promise to you that you can go to my restaurant, eat as much as you want, and take someone with you. And I noticed that the expiration date was 8888, August 8, 1988, 10 years or so from when I was collecting these tips. So I put them in my pocket. I got home and got to my brother, who was three years younger than me, and I said, Bo, many of you know him, excuse me, as... Uh, the highly esteemed Reverend Christian Lockridge Ruck of Church of the Cross. But at that point, he was just called Bo. I was like, Bo, you're nine, I'm 12. But in 10 years, when this card expires, we're going to go on the very date, 8888, and we are going to feast like kings. You'll be 19, I'll be 22, I can drive us. This is going to be one of the best days of our lives. We got super pumped about 8888. Well, I put the cards away in a little wooden box, and I forgot about them. And then every once in a while, I would be sorting things out, and I'd find the cards again and go, oh, yeah, 8888. I can't forget about these cards. Imagine my horror when I awakened on August 8th, 1988, with my brother on a vacation in New Hampshire. I woke up. I saw the calendar. I realized it was the 8th of August, 1988. Oh, no! Bo, we missed it. We forgot. We completely forgot our opportunity. Forgotten promise. In so many ways, the Holy Spirit's ministry, His empowering of us is like a forgotten promise. In the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the promise of the Father. And it is a promise that the Father has given us, that he will send the Holy Spirit to minister the power of Jesus, Jesus' cross and his resurrection to us. And yet so many of us who may be disciples of Jesus, followers and students of Jesus, have forgotten the promise of the power of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, 
we've also forgotten the purpose of this power. Now, the power of the Holy Spirit has many purposes. I'm going to focus on one that is specific to our text in Acts chapter 2 this morning. So as you have your Bible open, I'm going to look first of all at the promise of God's power, verses 1 to 4. And then in verses 4 to 11, the promises of God's power for you and for me to proclaim. Let's look at the promise of God's power here. When the day of Pentecost arrived, verse 1 of chapter 2, they were all together. That would be about 120 of them, according to chapter 1. Men and women, followers of Jesus, and 11 of them apostles in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. All right, let's, let's break this down a little bit. Whose power? What is this power? Okay, we start with it being the day of Pentecost. Extremely important. In the Hebrew, that would be called Shavuot. It was a revered Jewish feast. It came 50 days, Penta and 50, after Passover. It was first and foremost a feast of harvest. Already at this point, in the late spring, there'd be a harvest of barley, a harvest of wheat, and they'd be celebrating what would be called the first fruits, the first harvests. But over time, about 300 years prior to this event, Pentecost was not associated with harvest, but it became associated with the giving of the law, with the giving of the Ten Commandments, or even more technically and actually helpfully, what we call the giving of the Ten Words at Mount Sinai. And we know the giving of the Ten Words was an event of power. We know that actually it was an event of fire. In the Hebrew Scriptures, Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, we read of flashes of lightning that accompany God speaking. God speaking his ten words to his people, a newly constituted nation of Israel. An ancient commentary by rabbis actually described it this way. And it's helpful to hear this Jewish perspective. The word that went out from the mouth of the Holy One, blessed be he, was like shooting stars and lightnings and like flames. So this work that had already happened is now having, having a, a fullness given to it here at this Feast of Pentecost, this Feast of Shavuot. The Holy Spirit comes. There's, there, there, there's this ministry that will have a lot to do with the giving of words, the speaking of words. They're all filled, we read, with the Holy Spirit. Interestingly enough, the Holy Spirit, we're told by the Apostle Paul as he's putting all this together, he calls the Holy Spirit the first fruits the first fruits of the harvest of the kingdom of God that is given to us, Romans 8, verse 23. Not only is the Holy Spirit the first fruits, we're also told by Luke in Acts 16 and by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. That is to say that the Spirit is sent by the Father in Jesus' name. So if the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus and the Holy Spirit gives us a power what power is he given us? It's important to be clear about what power this is. What's the power of Jesus? Well, what's the power of Jesus? Well, it's the power of the cross, the power of the resurrection. First and foremost, the power of the Holy Spirit gives us the power to die to self. That's the power of the cross. Now, we think about dying to self, and I've taught on that a lot if you track with any of my teachings, and we may think about the power to die to self in a kind of sweeping, epic moment where maybe we're in some bizarre situation and we have to step forward and give our lives for somebody else. 
Highly unlikely, but possible. We may think about dying to self more in interpersonal relationships. We want to die to self for the sake of our roommate and serving them. We want to die to self for the sake of our husband or our wife or children or grandchildren. But I would actually argue that in this context, we want to understand dying to self in the context of mission, in the context of the Word of God being spread, that the Holy Spirit empowers us to die to self so that we can actually serve others who do not know Jesus. And the fact of the matter is, whenever we tell of Jesus, whenever we tell of the mighty acts of God, verse 11 in, cha- in, in chapter 2, it requires some death to self, doesn't it? Some willingness to overcome somebody else's need, somebody else's aid, more than what we want to do in that moment. I want to encourage us to reorient our understanding of death to self, not just in the interpersonal realm, but in the realm of mission. The Holy Spirit also gives us, by giving us the power of Jesus, the power to be different, which is really the power of the resurrection. The resurrected Jesus was utterly different. He was still fully human, but he was now the fullness of humanity in the new creation. He was risen from the dead. He was the new Adam. This is like a walk in and out of walls. He was, he was so full of glory. He was, he was so strong, if you will. He could just move in and out of things. He wasn't more ethereal. He was more real. Everything else was more ethereal. And his rising was a new day of creation, often called the eighth day of creation by early church thinkers, which is to say he was different. And we have the power of Jesus' resurrection Yes, to help us overcome sin. Yes, absolutely, to give us strength to, to move into the future and against adversity. But also it's the power so that we can be different. We need to understand the need to be different when we're sharing Jesus with others. There's just a kind of categorical reality that somebody who doesn't have Jesus and someone who has Jesus, they have a difference between them. We share a lot of common humanity, a lot of common fears and anxieties and challenges. But those who do have Jesus are different than those who do not. We need to be willing to understand that and to be in a proper relationship to that. This is an essential premise to mission. I remember being in a place, and many of you know my story, that I had several years far from God in my early 20s. What catalyzed my whole process of returning to the church, and while um, priests and other church leaders were very important in that process, the first person that catalyzed my realizing that I may be far from God in a radical way and needed to return to Jesus was somebody who was willing to be different, a peer of mine, a friend of mine, who always shared a lot of commonalities, my best friend from college, he was willing in a moment that I was sharing with him about my life, and he had made changes in his life recently toward Jesus to be different than me. And to say to me in a loving but confrontational way, Stuart, the decisions you're making are destructive. I thank God he was differentiated by the power of the resurrection. So what is this power for? We have sometimes forgotten the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit's ministry. We've not only forgotten that power, we've forgotten how it actually plays out and is manifest when the Holy Spirit first descends. Now, to be clear, the Holy Spirit's power manifests in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit manifests in the fruits of the Spirit. There's so many ways that the Holy Spirit's power manifests. But here, the first way that the power of the Spirit is applied is for the purpose of telling purpose of words, the purpose of proclamation, not technically preaching of the scriptures that I'm doing right now, but of telling the mighty acts of God. Verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. So I want to 
work with a phrase here as we explore verses 4 to 11 and what it means to proclaim. This is the phrase. We can tell anyone about Jesus. We can tell anyone about Jesus. Let's start with we. So we read that flames or flashes alight on all who were gathered. We see this indeed in chapter uh, 1, verse 15. Uh, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons, and brothers here as used Adolfoy would be brothers and sisters. We know that there were men and women. Indeed, we read in verse 14, we have the women who are recorded throughout the Gospel of Luke as followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. They also financially supported much of his work. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So we have this collection of men and women, 120 gathered, and flames and flashes of light alight on them. We sometimes think it's just the apostles, but I would argue textually, I think we have a strong argument. These are men and women gathered together who are in prayer, in the cenacle, in the upper room, praying. This would seem to correspond well, actually, textually, with Joel, who the apostle Peter will now, just in a few minutes from this moment, preach from, where we have in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, we read Peter quoting the prophet Joel from the Hebrew Scriptures, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters shall prophesy. Male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Which is to say, we, all of us, all flesh, that are followers of Jesus, filled by the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the we even takes a finer point. There's an interesting moment here in Luke's Chronicle, verse 7 of chapter 2, if you're looking at your Bible. And they were amazed and astonished. These are the people that are hearing them speak, who are gathered from all around the world for the Feast of Shavuot. They were amazed and they say, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So something's going on here. Either they're speaking in native language with Galilean accent, which is often the case if you are a second language speaker. You still speak with an accent. Or they just knew they were Galileans from their reputation or their background. The point, though, is that Galileans, within this cultural context, very likely, according to Joseph Shula, a Jewish rabbi and follower of Jesus, would have been seen as inferior. The Judeans are there in the center of all things in Jerusalem. The Galileans are farther north, perhaps more disconnected from a, a strong synagogue system, although there were synagogues all over Galilee. But they had a reputation of being not as intellectually developed. And so this we not only has a reality of men and women gathered together, not only a reality of old and young gathered together, but it has a reality of those who the world would consider inferior gathered within the world would consider superior, which is to say there's no way out of being considered in the we. It's all of us who can tell about Jesus' power. I'm just wondering if you forgot that promise. Or I'm wondering if you've even done some thinking about the Holy Spirit and receiving some ministry of the Holy Spirit and it was even tied to things like prophecy, which is very appropriate, or tied to encouragement, the gift of encouragement, or the gift of administration. But you didn't fully understand how it was actually tied to you, you, having the power to tell. To die to self, to be different, and to tell the mighty acts of God. You do it. We can tell everyone about Jesus' power. There is a critical telling here. See that again in verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues. Well, this, of course, makes a logical sense because there's a telling of the words of God. Go back to 
one of the deep meanings of the Feast of Pentecost had to do with God telling in the ten words the truths of who God was and how God's people should live. Intrinsic to the Feast of Pentecost, not only did the sense of the Holy Spirit, intrinsic to the Feast of Pentecost is the telling of the mighty works of God. No, it's a feast of the Spirit. It's a feast of the church. It's a feast of the Trinity. But I want to argue, it's a feast of telling as well. That is central to what's happening here because it has to do with the Word given at Mount Sinai. And now the Word of God coming fully in Jesus of Nazareth, the Word of God incarnate. And His ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God is a God who speaks intrinsic to the character and nature of God is the speaking of God. So for we who are imitators of God, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, who are called to be imitators of God, it is an intrinsic to who we are to be those who tell. This is not some kind of sequestered off area of the Christian life that you have to kind of handle every once in a while when the once a year sermon on evangelism comes on or you have to go through some training for evangelism somehow or another. And somehow you kind of like figure out, okay, I got to touch that, but it just, I'll just keep it there. This is deeply internalized in the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is deeply internalized as being a follower of Jesus who has Jesus who's made his home within us. This is part of being imitators of God. Now, perhaps some of you are thinking of a t-shirt that maybe you saw somewhere. Share the gospel, and when necessary, use words. Or perhaps you even thought, oh, yeah, I, I know that. that, that Does that come from St. Francis? Share the gospel, when necessary, use words. Let me just take the opportunity, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Telling, just to put that um, absolute ridiculous reality to death. I'd like to kill it. Poppycock. It's not true. St. Francis did not say that. That's verified by several scholars. As a matter of fact, the opposite reality exists. Thomas of Salerno, one of Francis's earliest biographers, wrote this, and I quote, his words, Francis's, were neither hollow nor ridiculous, but filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, penetrating to the marrow of the heart, so that his listeners were turned to great amazement. <laughs> Francis was a preaching Francis. He had preaching friars. It's just not true. We share the gospel. And we share the gospel in many ways. I'm going to talk about that right now. But often, and primarily, not exclusively, we use words. So uh, this winter before COVID hit, I was traveling, and I was um, in a city. I went out for a run in the morning, went, went in uh, to the hotel to get my bottle of water at the uh, shop there, and had a, a very nice young woman who was helping me, and we got chatting, and, and um, I bought the water from her, and she had an accent, so I asked where she was from, and she said, Aleppo, Syria. Well, I'm interested in current events and, and global events, and also as one who prays and intercedes, I've been very aware of Aleppo and the utter travesties that have occurred in her city, her home city. I said, oh, I am so sorry. You all have lived through absolute hell on this. Because you know about Aleppo? I said, well, well of course, and I, I don't know everything, but I, I'm just aware of the suffering that's been. And she goes, oh, my family has suffered horribly. And I know that in Syria there, there, there are, there's Christians, there's Muslims, there's other traditions as well. So I just asked, so what's your, your faith background? She said, oh, I'm Muslim. Let me talk some more about that. And I said, and she's like, behind the counter, we're just chatting, no one else is there. And I just say, would you be okay if I just prayed for you after all you've experienced coming out of Aleppo and how happy I am that you're here? She said, oh, of course, please pray for me. So I prayed for her. And then I realized as I was walking out of the shop, I had nothing else to give her. I used to carry really well-written, theologically developed tracts with me, but I got out of that habit. And I prayed, Lord, I need tracts. I need something to give people that's well-written, theologically coherent and strong that I can give to somebody like this young woman who became my new friend. So a week later, I'm in another airport, another situation. 
and I'm having lunch with another clergy person. We both have our collars on. And in the middle of our lunch, a gentleman comes over, very nicely dressed, but, but a little bit older than me, uh, immediately struck me as kind of a marketplace guy. And he says, excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt you guys, but I just wanted to give you these. And he literally puts two tracks in front of me. They're written, they're, they're published by Crossway, one of our dear ministry partners here in the area. We have some Crossway uh, leaders who are part of our congregation here at Resurrection. And I was delighted they were Crossway. They were wonderful tracks. I said, oh, thank you so much. We finished our lunch. He was still having his lunch. I went over and said to him, hey, um, you know, thank you for giving these to me. And I began to realize, oh, I had the collar on. Um, I was wearing a black collar. He probably assumes that I'm some tradition where I may be religious but not born again. So I said, thank you so much for these tracks. I'm actually born again. I said, but could I keep these? Could I ask God for tracks? He goes, oh, I'm delighted. He said, my ministry, because I'm a marketplace guy. I travel all around the country as a sales guy. Um, but my, my ministry, my, my vocation is telling about the gospel. And so I just share these tracks whenever I feel like the Holy Spirit prompts me. And I was so blessed. I mean, he's out doing the gospel work amidst his marketplace ministry. And he gave me these tracks. And he was equipping me as a pastor to share the gospel. I got on the plane, and you know what happened. I sat next to a young man, Egyptian-American, practicing Muslim, remarkable young man, uh, got into law, got into medical school, and was interviewing for residencies. We shared the whole time, back and forth, and I picked up one of the tracks that this gentleman had given me just an hour prior, and it was how to be a man of God. And we talked about manhood and being a young man, and I'm an older gentleman, and so I gave him that track. I gave him the words of God that were in that track. There was a telling opportunity, equipped by a marketplace leader. Many of you are in the marketplace. You may not all be called to do it the way this gentleman has done, but for you and men and women that are in the marketplace, let me just encourage you again to be tellers. You, you, you're filled with the Holy Spirit to be a teller. Then, of course, we just have others who, moments come up, a, a parent, a godparent. You may be a single celibate, but you're connected to a family. In those ages with children around six, maybe age five to ten, you have so many opportunities with children to be tellers. I was, I was out playing wiffle ball with my son Beckett, who's nine, and we were just playing wiffle ball and, and goofing around the yard, and all of a sudden he asked me, so, Daddy, what's purgatory? I don't know where he heard about purgatory. I don't know how he came up with the word. And I was able to say, oh, okay, let me, let me talk to you about that. Actually, let me just talk to you biblically, uh, more specifically about what heaven is and what hell is, because that's really what the biblical teaching is about. And we had a short conversation about heaven and hell. But he's nine, and he asked questions. For parents, godparents, single celibates connected with families, you will have these opportunities as you spend time with children. And in that moment, we're tellers. Now, let me say this. There are times when we tell without words. And we have got a diocese movement full of artists. And I want to call you as artists to be preachers within your mediums. Indeed, I'm so blessed. I think I have this with me. Oh, I don't have it. Right. I thought I had it with me. Um, I'm so blessed by a card I've carried around for the last year done by one of our artists, uh, Johnny Hoffner, who's part of Christ Church Madison. I asked Johnny if I could mention this. He has done an amazing um, photograph where it has one person on a ledge um, resting, and another person taking this leap of faith. And I've just been ministered to the place of Sabbath that we're sometimes in and the place of leaping into the life of Jesus that we're also in. That image, which has no words connected to it, has ministered the mighty acts of God to me. If you're a poet, right, if you're a painter, if you're a writer of another kind, a production artist, so many different kinds of artists, we need you to be tellers. Indeed, in this time, in our country's life and culture, in some ways, you have incredible opportunity influence. So yes, we use words, but we also use images and meter and rhyme to tell the mighty acts of God, be empowered to do so. Finally, we can tell anyone about Jesus' power. Indeed, we see there were gatherings of peoples 
in verses 8 and, and 9 and 10, we have Arabs, we had Africans, we have people of different skin colors, different backgrounds, different language and ethnicities. They can tell anyone about Jesus. You can go anywhere and tell anyone about Jesus, yes, with cultural training and sensitivity, but it is there. This stole that I'm wearing comes from one of the least evangelized countries in the world. I was there with a Christian worker. We found it inexplicably in a shop where there are no Christians, and yet there was a Christian priest stole there. And I wear this on Pentecost to remind me that we can tell anyone with proper cultural training about Jesus. And that's true as well in our own country. Father Rick Richardson is a dear friend and mentored me in evangelism some 25 years ago. And he has written a beautiful book. And in this book, he talks about the fact that only 6% of the unchurched think the Christian faith is harmful to society. So we had this, we had this assumption, right, that, that there's all kinds of people who don't want to hear about Christianity and are hostile to it. Rick's argument is 6% of the unchurched that they did extensive um, um, polling with think the Christian faith is harmful to society, which means 94% are really fine to hear about Christianity. As a matter of fact, 80% of unchurched people said, I'm fine with, 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 with you talking about your faith. I'm absolutely fine with it. So we act as if we're in this hostility. We act as if we're in some like, like 1970s closed, you know, Eastern European communist country or something. When the fact of the matter is that isn't true at all. Now it was true then you could tell anyone about Jesus. But it's even more true here in our country now. So let us tell an old friend. Since we can't be in connection with people with the social distancing. Tell an old friend by text about making a reconnection in Jesus. Tell a family member. Learn how to tell well. Let me conclude by just inviting you. Uh, Father Rick Richardson is going to be doing a training, and it's part of his book, You Found Me. Um, he'll be doing a Zoom training for our diocese on June 4th. And he is, he is a master teacher and thinker about these realities, of especially American, North American evangelism. June 4th, you can register at midwestanglican.org. Just find the home page, click on pastoral resources. It'll take you right there. But the fact of the matter is we have been given beloved diocesan family, the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us not forget that promise. And let us not forget the promise. It's a power to tell. It's a power to proclaim. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.